Hey folks, this is Rich Outfield, and you are listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. This may be a bit of an unusual episode in that I am not going to talk very much. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that we are not doing one of my stories. We're doing an old ghost story by M.R. James uh, from 1911, and it's super long. And because it's long, why not be a little bit shorter in the parts that I contribute? And the other reason is I really, I don't have that much to say about the story, certainly not here on this side. Uh, The tale that you're about to hear is called Casting the Runes, and it was published in M.R. James' collection, More Ghost Stories, but it's not a ghost story. I am going to present it to you. It's the first M.R. James story that I have recorded, and a lot of people had talked about it, and so I picked up a book that had it in there, and I recorded it for you. And I enjoyed the experience so much that I went ahead and did another M.R. James story like two weeks later. And uh, I've still got that book with his stories in them, and I'm tempted to do a third because I do enjoy it. And I, if you enjoy listening to it, let me know. But uh, he was an Englishman, and the characters in his book are, by all accounts, English. And so this was something of an experiment. I am not English myself. But I made the decision to try and voice the main character as myself and everybody else with an accent. And we'll talk on the other end why... I feel like that was a mistake, but I hope you can still enjoy the story. M.R. James was a medievalist scholar and lecturer uh, born in 1862. He was provost of King's College at Cambridge and of Eton College. And he, uh, he passed away in 1936. He is best known today as a ghost story writer. The first collection of his ghost stories was published in 1904 called Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, followed by the collection this story appeared in More Ghost Stories. He did three more collections later in life, one in 1919, one in 1925, one in 1928. And then, uh, you know, The Collected Ghost Stories of M.R. James. That was in 1931. So I guess I will let you go. Feel free to let me know what you think of the narration, what you think of the story, and what you think of those fuzzy caterpillars that become moths. Casting the Room by M. R. James, narrated by Rish Outfield. April 15th. Dear Sir, 
I am requested by the Council of the Association to return to you the draft of a paper on The Truth of Alchemy, which you have been good enough to offer to read at our forthcoming meeting, and to inform you that the Council do not see their way to including it in the program. I am yours faithfully, Secretary. April 18th. Dear Sir, I am sorry to say that my engagements do not permit of my affording you an interview on the subject of your proposed paper, nor do our laws allow of your discussing the matter with a committee of our council, as you suggest. Please allow me to assure you that the fullest consideration was given to the draft which you submitted, and that it was not declined without having been referred to the judgment of a most competent authority. No personal question, it can hardly be necessary for me to add, can have had the slightest influence on the decision of the Council. Believe me, Atsupra. April 20th. The Secretary of the Association begs respectfully to inform Mr. Carswell that it is impossible for him to communicate the name of any person or persons to whom the draft of Mr. Carswell's paper may have been submitted, and further desires to intimate that he cannot undertake to reply to any further letters on this subject. "'And who is Mr. Carswell?' inquired the secretary's wife. She had called at his office, and, perhaps unwarrantably, had picked up the last of these three letters— which the typist had just brought in. "'Why, my dear, just at present, Mr. Carswell is a very angry man. But I don't know much about him otherwise, except that he is a person of wealth. His address is Luford Abbey, Warwickshire, and he is an alchemist, apparently, and wants to tell us all about it, and that's about all, except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two. Now, if you're ready to leave this place, I am. What have you been doing to make him angry? asked Mrs. Secretary. The usual thing, my dear, the usual thing. He sent in a draft of a paper he wanted to read at the next meeting, and we referred it to Edward Dunning, almost the only man in England who knows about these things, and he said it was perfectly hopeless, so we declined it. So Carswell has been pelting me with letters ever since, the last thing he wanted was the name of the man we referred his nonsense to. You saw my answer to that. But don't you say anything about it, for goodness sake. I should think not, indeed. Did I ever do such a thing? I do hope, though, he won't get to know that it was poor Mr. Dunning. Poor Mr. Dunning? I don't know why you call him that. He's a very happy man, is Dunning. Lots of hobbies and a comfortable home and all his time to himself. I only meant I should be sorry for him if this man got hold of his name and came and, and bothered him. Oh, ah, uh, yes, I dare say he would be poor Mr. Dunning then. The secretary and his wife were lunching out, and the friends to whose house they were bound were Warwickshire people. So Mrs. Secretary had already settled it in her own mind that she would question them judiciously about Mr. Carswell, but she was saved the trouble of leading up to the subject, for the hostess said to the host, before many minutes had passed, I saw the abbot of Luford this morning. The host whistled. Did you? What in the world brings him up to town? Goodness knows, he was coming out of the British Museum gate as I drove past. 
It was not unnatural that Mrs. Secretary should inquire whether this was a real abbot who was being spoken of. Oh, no, my dear, only a neighbor of ours in the country who bought Luford Abbey a few years ago. Uh, his real name is Carswell. Is he a friend of yours? asked Mr. Secretary with a private wink to his wife. The question let loose a torrent of declamation. There was really nothing to be said for Mr. Carswell. Nobody knew what he did with himself. His servants were a horrible set of people. He had invented a new religion for himself and practiced, no one could tell what, appalling rites. He was easily offended and never forgave anybody. He had a dreadful face, so the lady insisted, her husband somewhat demurring. He never did a kind action, and whatever influence he did exert was mischievous. Do the poor man justice, dear, the husband interrupted. You forget the treat he gave the school children. Forget it indeed, but I'm glad you mentioned it, because it gives an idea of the man. Now, Florence, listen to this. The first winter he was at Luford, this delightful neighbour of ours wrote to the clergyman of his parish. Now, he's not ours, but we know him very well, and offered to show the school children some magic lantern slides. He said he had some new kinds, which he thought would interest them. Well, the clergyman was rather surprised, because Mr. Carswell had shown himself inclined to be unpleasant to the children, complaining of their trespassing or something of the sort. But of course he accepted, and the evening was fixed, and our friend went himself to see that everything went right. He said he had never been so thankful for anything as that his own children were all prevented from being there. They were at a children's party at our house, as a matter of fact, because this Mr. Carswell had evidently set out with the intention of frightening these poor village children out of their wits, and I do believe if he had been allowed to go on, he would actually have done so. Now, he began with some comparatively mild things. Red Riding Hood was one, and even then Mr. Farrer said the wolf was so dreadful that several of the smaller children had to be taken out. And he said Mr. Carswell began the story by producing a noise like a wolf howling in the distance, which was the most gruesome thing he had ever heard. All the slides he showed, Mr. Farrer said, were most clever. They were absolutely realistic, and where he had got them or how he worked them, he could not imagine. Well, the show went on, and the stories kept on becoming a little more terrifying each time, and the children were mesmerised into complete silence. At last, he produced a series which represented a little boy passing through his own park, Luford, I mean, in the evening. Every child in the room could recognise the place from the pictures, and this poor boy was followed and at last pursued and overtaken and either torn to pieces or somehow made away with by a horrible hopping creature in white, which you first saw dodging about among the trees and gradually it appeared more and more plainly. Mr. Farrow said that it gave him one of the worst nightmares he ever remembered and what it must have meant to the children doesn't bear thinking of. Now, of course, this was too much, and he spoke very sharply indeed to Mr. Carswell and said it couldn't go on. And all he said was, Oh, you think it's time to bring our little show to an end and send them home to their beds? Very well. And then, if you please, he switched on another slide, which showed a great mass of snakes, centipedes, and disgusting creatures with wings. 
and somehow or other he made it seem as if they were climbing out of the picture and getting in amongst the audience, and this was accompanied by a sort of dry rustling sound which sent the children nearly mad, and of course they stampeded. A good many of them were rather hurt in getting out of the room, and I don't suppose one of them closed an eye that night. There was the most dreadful trouble in the village afterwards. Of course the mothers threw a good part of the blame on poor Mr. Farrer, and if they could have got past the gates, I believe the fathers would have broken every window in the abbey. Well, now, that's Mr. Carswell. That's the abbot of Luford, my dear, and you can imagine how we covet his society. Yes, and I think he has all the possibilities of a distinguished criminal, has Carswell, said the host. I should be sorry for anyone who got into his bad books. Is he the man, or am I mixing him up with someone else? asked the secretary, who for some minutes had been wearing the frown of a man who is trying to recollect something. Is he the man who brought out a history of witchcraft some time back, ten years or more? That's the man. Do you remember the reviews of it? Certainly I do. And what's equally to the point, I knew the author of the most incisive of the lot. So did you. You must remember John Harrington. He was at John's in our time. Oh, very well indeed, though I don't think I saw or heard anything of him between the time I went down and the day I read the account of the inquest on him. Inquest? said one of the ladies. What has happened to him? Why, what happened was that he fell out of a tree and broke his neck. But the puzzle was, what could have induced him to get up there? It was a mysterious business, I must say. Here was this man, not an athletic fellow, was he? And with no eccentric twist about him that was ever noticed, walking home along a country road late in the evening, no tramps about, well known and liked in the place, and he suddenly begins to run like mad, loses his hat and stick, and finally shins up a tree, quite a difficult tree, growing in the hedgerow. A dead branch gives way, and he comes down with it and breaks his neck, and here he's found the next morning with the most dreadful face of fear on him that could be imagined. And it was pretty evident, of course, that he had been chased by something, and people talked of savage dogs and, and beasts escaped out of menageries, but there was nothing to be made of that. That was in 89, and I believe his brother Henry, whom I remember as well at Cambridge, but you probably don't, has been trying to get on the track of an explanation ever since. He, of course, insists there was malice in it, but I don't know. It's difficult to see how it could have come in. After a time, the talk reverted to the history of witchcraft. "'Did you ever look into it?' asked the host. "'Yes, I did,' said the secretary. "'I went so far as to read it.' "'Was it as bad as it was made out to be?' "'Oh, in point of style and form, <laughs> quite hopeless. "'It deserved all the pulverizing it got. "'But besides that, it was an evil book.' The man believed every word of what he was saying, and, and I'm very much mistaken if he hadn't tried the greater part of his receipts. Well, I only remember Harrington's review of it, and I, I must say, if I'd been the author, it would have quenched my literary ambition for good. I should never have held up my head again. Well, it hasn't had that effect in the present case. Uh, but come, it, it's half past three. I must be off. 
On the way home, the secretary's wife said, I do hope that horrible man won't find out that Mr. Dunning had anything to do with the rejection of his paper. I don't think there's much chance of that, said the secretary. Dunning won't mention it himself, for these matters are confidential, and none of us will for the same reason. Carswell won't know his name, for Dunning hasn't published anything on the same subject yet. The only danger is that Carswell might find out if he was to ask the British Museum people who was in the habit of consulting alchemical manuscripts. Now, I can't very well tell them not to mention Dunning, can I? It would set them talking at once. Let's hope it won't occur to him. However, Mr. Carswell was an astute man. This is much in the way of prologue. On an evening rather later in the same week, Mr. Edward Dunning was returning from the British Museum, where he had been engaged in research, to the comfortable house in a suburb where he lived alone, tended by two excellent women who had long been with him. There is nothing to be added by way of description of him to what we have heard already. Let us follow him as he takes his sober course homewards. A train took him to within a mile or two of his house, and an electric tram a stage farther. The line ended at a point some hundred yards from his front door. He had had enough of reading when he got into the car, and indeed the light was not such as to allow him to do more than study the advertisements on the panes of glass that faced him as he sat. As was not unnatural, the advertisements in this particular line of cars were objects of his frequent contemplation, and with the possible exception of the brilliant and convincing dialogue between Mr. Lamplow and an eminent K.C. on the subject of pyretic saline, none of them afforded much scope to his imagination. No, I, I am wrong. There was one at the corner of the car farthest from him which did not seem familiar. It was in blue letters on a yellow ground, and all that he could read was a name, John Harrington, and something like a date. It could be of no interest to him to know more. But for all that, as the car emptied, he was just curious enough to move along the seat until he could read it well. He felt, to a slight extent, repaid for his trouble. The advertisement was not of the usual type. It ran thus. In memory of John Harrington, F.S.A., of The Laurels, Ashbrook, died September 18th, 1889. Three months were allowed. The car stopped. Mr. Dunning, still contemplating the blue letters on the yellow ground, had to be stimulated to rise by a word from the conductor. I beg your pardon, he said. I was looking at that advertisement. It's a very odd one, isn't it? The conductor read it slowly. Well, my word, he said. I never see that one before. Well, that is a cure, ain't it? Someone been up to their jokes here, I should think. He got out a duster and applied it, not without saliva, to the pane and then to the outside. No, he said, returning. That ain't no transfer. Seems to me as if it was regular in the glass. What I mean in the substance, as you may say. Don't you think so, sir? Mr. Dunning examined it and rubbed it with his glove and agreed. Who looks after these advertisements and gives leave for them to be put up? I wish you would inquire. I will just take a note of the words. At this moment there came a call from the driver. Look alive, George. Time's up. 
All right, all right. There's something else what's up at this end. You come and look at this here glass. What's gone with the glass? said the driver, approaching. Well, and who's Arrington? What's it all about? I was just asking who was responsible for putting the advertisements up in your cars and saying it would be as well to make some inquiry about this one. Well, sir, that's all done at the company's office, that work is. It's our Mr. Timms, I believe, looks into that. When we put it up tonight, I'll give word, and perhaps I'll be able to tell you tomorrow if you happen to be coming this way. This was all that passed that evening. Mr. Dunning did just go to the trouble of looking up Ashbrook, and found that it was in Warwickshire. Next day, he went to town again. The car, it was the same car, was too full in the morning to allow of his getting a word with the conductor. He could only be sure that the curious advertisement had been made away with. The close of the day brought a further element of mystery into the transaction. He had missed the tram, or else preferred walking home, but at a rather late hour, while he was at work in his study, one of the maids came to say that two men from the tramways was very anxious to speak to him. This was a reminder of the advertisement, which he had, he said, nearly forgotten. He had the men in. They were the conductor and driver of the car, and when the matter of refreshment had been attended to, asked what Mr. Timms had had to say about the advertisement. "'Well, sir, that's what we took the liberty to step around about,' said the conductor. "'Mr. Timms, he gave William here the rough side of his tongue about that. "'Cordon to him, there wasn't no advertisement of that description sent in, "'nor ordered, nor paid for, nor put up, nor nothing, let alone not being there. "'And we was playing the fool, taking up his time. "'Well,' I says, "'if that's the case, all I ask of you, Mr. Timms,' I says, "'is to take and look at it for yourself,' I says.' Of course, if it ain't there, I says, you may take and call me what you like. Right, he says, I will. And we went straight off. Now I leave it to you, sir, if that ad, as we term them, with Arrington on it, warrant as plain as ever you see anything, blue letters on yellow glass, and as I says at the time, and you borne me out, regular in the glass, because, if you remember, you recollect me swabbing it with my duster, to be sure I do, quite clearly. Well? You may say, well, I don't think. Mr. Timsey gets in that car with a light. No, no, he tells William to hold the light outside. Now, he says, where's your precious ad, what we've heard so much about? Here it is, I said, Mr. Timms, and I laid my hand on it. The conductor paused. Well, said Mr. Dunning, it was gone, I suppose. Broken. Broke? Not it. There weren't, if you believe me, no more trace of them letters. Blue letters they was on that piece of glass than... Well, it's no good me talking. I never see such a thing. I leave it to William here if... But there, as I says, where's the benefit in me going on about it? And what did Mr. Timms say? Why, he did what I'd give him leave to. Called us pretty much anything he liked. And I don't know as I'd blame him so much, neither. But what we thought, William and me did, was as we seen you take down a bit of a note about that, well, that, that lettering. Well, I certainly did that. And I have it now. Did you wish me to speak to Mr. Timms myself and show it to him? Was that what you came in about? There. There, didn't I say as much? said William. 
Deal with a gent if you can get on the track with one. That's my word. Now, perhaps, George, you'll allow as I ain't took you very far wrong tonight. Very well, William, very well. No need for you to go on as if you had to frogs march me here. I come quiet, didn't I? All the same for that. We hadn't ought to take up your time this way, sir, but if it so happened that you could find the time to uh, step round to the company office this morning and tell Mr. Timms what you've seen for yourself, we should lay under a very high obligation to you for the trouble. You see, it ain't been called, well, one thing and another, as we mind, but if they got it into their head at the office, if we seen things as weren't there, why... One thing leads to another, and where we should be a twelve months hence. Well, you can understand what I mean. Amid further elucidations of the proposition, George, conducted by William, left the room. The incredulity of Mr. Timms, who had a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Dunning, was greatly modified on the following day by what the latter could tell and show him, and any bad mark that might have been attached to the names of William and George was not suffered to remain on the company's books. But explanation, there was none. Mr. Dunning's interest in the matter was kept alive by an incident of the following afternoon. He was walking from his club to the train, and he noticed some way ahead a man with a handful of leaflets, such as are distributed to passers-by by agents of enterprising firms. This agent had not chosen a very crowded street for his operations. In fact, Mr. Dunning did not see him get rid of a single leaflet before he himself reached the spot. One was thrust into his hand as he passed. The hand that gave it touched his, and he experienced a sort of little shock as it did so. It seemed unnaturally rough and hot. He looked in passing at the giver, but the impression he got was so unclear that, however much he tried to reckon it up subsequently, nothing would come. He was walking quickly, and as he went on, glanced at the paper. It was a blue one. The name of Harrington in large capitals caught his eye. He stopped, startled, and felt for his glasses. The next instant, the leaflet was twitched out of his hand by a man who hurried past, and was irrecoverably gone. He ran back a few paces, but where was the passer-by, and where the distributor? It was in a somewhat pensive frame of mind that Mr. Dunning passed on the following day into the select manuscript room of the British Museum, and filled up tickets for Harley 3586 and some other volumes. After a few minutes they were brought to him, and he was settling the one he wanted first upon the desk, when he thought he heard his own name whispered behind him. He turned around hastily, and in doing so, brushed his little portfolio of loose papers onto the floor. He saw no one he recognized, except one of the staff in charge of the room, who nodded to him, and he proceeded to pick up his papers. He thought he had them all, and was turning to begin work, when a stout gentleman at the table behind him, who was just rising to leave, and had collected his own belongings, touched him on the shoulder, saying, "'May I give you this? I think it should be yours,' and handed him a missing choir. "'It is mine, thank you,' said Mr. Dunning. In another moment the man had left the room. Upon finishing his work for the afternoon, Mr. Dunning had some conversation with the assistant in charge, and took occasion to ask who the stout gentleman was. "'Oh, he's a man named Carswell,' said the assistant. He was asking me a week ago who were the great authorities on alchemy, and, of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. 
I'll see if I can catch him. He'd like to meet you, I'm sure. For heaven's sake, don't dream of it, said Mr. Dunning. I'm particularly anxious to avoid him. Oh, very well, said the assistant. He doesn't come here often. I, I, I dare say you won't meet him. More than once on the way home that day, Mr. Dunning confessed to himself that he did not look forward with his usual cheerfulness to a solitary evening. It seemed to him that something ill-defined and impalpable had stepped in behind him and his fellow men, had taken him in charge, as it were. He wanted to sit close up to his neighbors in the train and in the tram, but as luck would have it, both train and car were markedly empty. The conductor, George, was thoughtful and appeared to be absorbed in calculations as to the number of passengers. On arriving at his house, he found Dr. Watson, his medical man, on his doorstep. "'I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. Both your servants, hors de combat. In fact, I've had to send them to the nursing home.' "'Good heavens! What's the matter?' It's something like ptomaine poisoning, I should think. I, I should think. You've not suffered yourself, I can see, or you wouldn't be walking about. I think they'll pull through all right. Dear, dear, have you any idea what brought it on? Well, they, they tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker at their dinner time. It's odd. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that any hawker has been to the other houses in the street. I couldn't send word to you. They won't be back for a bit yet. You come and dine with me tonight, anyhow, and we can make arrangements for going on. Eight o'clock. Don't be too anxious. The solitary evening was thus obviated, at the expense of some distress and inconvenience, it is true. Mr. Dunning spent the time pleasantly enough with the doctor, a rather recent settler, and returned to his lonely home at about eleven-thirty. The night he passed is not one on which he looks back with any satisfaction. He was in bed and the light was out. He was wondering if the charwoman would come early enough to get him hot water the next morning, when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening. No step followed it on the passage floor, but the sound must mean mischief, for he knew that he had shut the door that evening after putting his papers away in his desk. It was rather shame than courage that induced him to slip out into the passage and lean over the banister in his nightgown, listening. No light was visible, no further sound came, only a gust of warm or even hot air played for an instant round his shins. He went back and decided to lock himself into his room. There was more unpleasantness, however. Either an economical suburban company had decided that their light would not be required in the small hours and had stopped working, or else something was wrong with the meter. The effect was, in any case, that the electric light was off. The obvious course was to find a match, and also to consult his watch. He might as well know how many hours of discomfort awaited him. So he put his hand into the well-known nook under the pillow, only it did not get so far. What he touched was, according to his account, a mouth with teeth and with hair about it, and he declares not the mouth of a human being. I do not think it is any use to guess what he said or did, but he was in a spare room with the door locked and his ear to it before he was clearly conscious again. And there he spent the rest of a most miserable night, looking every moment for some fumbling at the door. But nothing came. 
The venturing back to his own room in the morning was attended with many listenings and quiverings. The door stood open, fortunately, and the blinds were up. The servants had been out of the house before the hour of drawing them down. There was, to be short, no trace of an inhabitant. The watch, too, was in its usual place. Nothing was disturbed. Only the wardrobe door had swung open, in accordance with its confirmed habit. A ring at the back door now announced the charwoman, who had been ordered the night before and nerved Mr. Dunning, after letting her in, to continue his search in other parts of the house. It was equally fruitless. The day thus begun went on dismally enough. He dared not go to the museum, in spite of what the assistant had said. Carswell might turn up there, and Dunning felt he could not cope with a probably hostile stranger. His own house was odious. He hated sponging on the doctor. He spent some little time in a call at the nursing home, where he was slightly cheered by a good report of his housekeeper and maid. Towards lunchtime, he betook himself to his club, again experiencing a gleam of satisfaction at seeing the secretary of the association. At luncheon, Dunning told his friend the more material of his woes, but could not bring himself to speak of those that weighed most heavily on his spirits. "'My poor dear man!' said the secretary. What an upset! Look here, we're alone at home, absolutely. You must put up with us. Yes, no excuse. Send your things in this afternoon. Dunning was unable to stand out. He was, in truth, becoming acutely anxious, as the hours went on, as to what the night might have waiting for him. He was almost happy as he hurried home to pack up. His friends, when they had time to take stock of him, were rather shocked at his lorn appearance, and did their best to keep him up to the mark. Not altogether without success, but when the two men were smoking alone later, Dunning became dull again. Suddenly he said, "'Gayton, I believe that alchemist man knows it was I who got his paper rejected.' Gayton whistled. "'What makes you think that?' he said. Dunning told of his conversation with the museum assistant, and Gayton could only agree that the guess seemed likely to be correct. "'Not that I care much,' Dunning went on. "'Only it might be a nuisance if we were to meet. He's a bad-tempered party, I imagine.' Conversation dropped again. Gayton became more and more strongly impressed with the desolateness that came over Dunning's face and bearing, and finally, though with a considerable effort, he asked him point-blank whether something serious was not bothering him. Dunning gave an exclamation of relief. "'I was perishing to get it off my mind,' he said. "'Do you know anything about a man named John Harrington?' Gayton was thoroughly startled, and at the moment could only ask why. Then the complete story of Dunning's experiences came out, what had happened in the tramcar, in his own house, and in the street, the troubling of spirit that had crept over him and still held him, and he ended with the question he had begun with. Gayton was at a loss how to answer him. To tell the story of Harrington's end would perhaps be right, only Dunning was in a nervous state. The story was a grim one, and he could not help asking himself whether there were not a connecting link between these two cases, in the person of Carswell. It was a difficult concession for a scientific man, but it could be eased by the phrase hypnotic suggestion. 
In the end, he decided that his answer tonight should be guarded. He would talk the situation over with his wife. So he said that he had known Harrington at Cambridge and believed he had died suddenly in 1889, adding a few details about the man and his published work. He did talk over the matter with Mrs. Gayton, and, as he had anticipated, she leapt at once to the conclusion which had been hovering before him. It was she who reminded him of the surviving brother, Henry Harrington, and she also who suggested that he might be got hold of by means of their hosts of the day before. He might be a hopeless crank, objected Gayton. That could be ascertained from the Bennets who knew him, Mrs. Gayton retorted, and she undertook to see the Bennets the very next day. It is not necessary to tell in further detail the steps by which Henry Harrington and Dunning were brought together. The next scene that does require to be narrated is a conversation that took place between the two. Dunning had told Harrington of the strange ways in which the dead man's name had been brought before him, and had said something, besides, of his own subsequent experiences. Then he had asked if Harrington was disposed, in return, to recall any of the circumstances connected with his brother's death. Harrington's surprise at what he heard can be imagined, but his reply was readily given. John, he said, was in a very odd state, undeniably, from time to time, during some weeks before, though not immediately before, the catastrophe. There were several things. The principal notion he had was that he thought he was being followed. No doubt he was an impressionable man, but he had never had such fancies as this before. I cannot get it out of my mind that there was ill-will at work, and what you tell me about yourself reminds me very much of my brother. Can you think of any possible connecting link? There is just one that has been taking shape vaguely in my mind. I've been told that your brother reviewed a book very severely, not long before he died, and just lately I have happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book in a way he would resent. Don't tell me the man was called Carswell. Why not? That is exactly his name. Henry Harrington leaned back. That is final to my mind. Now I must explain further. From something he said, I feel sure that my brother John was beginning to believe, very much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. I want to tell you what seems to me to have a bearing on the situation. My brother was a great musician and used to run up to concerts in town. He came back three months before he died from one of these and gave me his programme to look at, an analytical programme. He always kept them. I nearly missed this one, he said. I suppose I must have dropped it. Anyhow, I was looking for it under my seat and my pockets and so on, and my neighbour offered me his, said, might he give it to me? He had no further use for it, and he went away just afterwards. I don't know who he was, a stout, clean-shaven man. I should have been sorry to miss it, of course. I could have bought another, but this cost me nothing. At another time he told me that he had been very uncomfortable, both on the way to his hotel and during the night. I piece things together now in thinking it over. Then, not very long after, he was going over these programmes, putting them in order to have them bound up, and in this particular one, which, by the way, I had hardly glanced at, he found quite near the beginning a strip of paper with some 
very odd writing on it in red and black, most carefully done. It looked to me more like runic letters than anything else. Why, he said, this must belong to my fat neighbour. It looks as if it might be worth returning to him. It may be a copy of something. Evidently someone has taken trouble over it. How can I find his address? We talked it over for a little and agreed that it wasn't worth advertising about and that my brother had better look out for the man at the next concert, to which he was going very soon. The paper was lying on the book, and we were both by the fire. It was a cold, windy summer evening. I suppose the door blew open, though I didn't notice it. At any rate, a gust, a warm gust it was, came quite suddenly between us, took the paper, and blew it straight into the fire. It was light, thin paper, and flared and went up the chimney in a single ash, well, I said, you can't give it back now. But he said nothing for a minute, then rather crossly, No, I can't, but why you should keep on saying so, I don't know. I remarked that I didn't say it more than once. Not more than four times, you mean, was all he said. I remember all that very clearly, without any good reason, and now to come to the point. I don't know if you looked at that book of Carswell's which my unfortunate brother reviewed. It's not likely that you should, but I did, both before his death and after it. The first time we made game of it together, it was written in no style at all, split infinitives and every sort of thing that makes an Oxford gorge rise. Then there was nothing that the man didn't swallow, mixing up classical myths and stories out of the golden legend with reports of savage customs of today, all very proper, no doubt, if you know how to use them. But he didn't. He seemed to put the golden legend and the golden bough exactly on a par, and to believe both a pitiable exhibition, in short. Well, after the misfortune, I looked over the book again, it was no better than before, but the impression which it left this time on my mind was different. I suspected, as I told you, that Carswell had borne ill will to my brother, even that he was in some way responsible for what had happened, and now his book seemed to me to be a very sinister performance indeed. One chapter in particular struck me in which he spoke of casting the runes on people, either for the purpose of gaining their affection or of getting them out of the way, perhaps more especially the latter. He spoke of all this in a way that really seemed to me to imply actual knowledge. I've not time to go into details, but the upshot is that I am pretty sure from information received that the civil man at the concert was Carswell. I suspect. Uh, I more than suspect, that the paper was of importance, and I do believe that if my brother had been able to give it back, he might have been alive now. Therefore, it occurs to me to ask you whether you have anything to put beside what I have told you. By way of answer, Dunning had the episode in the manuscript room at the British Museum to relate. Then he did actually hand you some papers. Have you examined them? No because we must, if you'll allow it, look at them at once and very carefully. They went to the still empty house, empty, for the two servants were not yet able to return to work. Dunning's portfolio of papers was gathering dust on the writing table. 
In it were the quires of small-sized scribbling paper which he used for his transcripts, and from one of these, as he took it up, there slipped and fluttered out into the room with uncanny quickness a strip of thin, light paper. The window was open, but Harrington slammed it too, just in time to intercept the paper, which he caught. "'I thought so,' he said. "'It might be the identical thing that was given to my brother.' You'll have to look out, Dunning. This may mean something quite serious for you. A long consultation took place. The paper was narrowly examined. As Harrington had said, the characters on it were more like runes than anything else, but not decipherable by either man, and both hesitated to copy them, for fear, as they confessed, of perpetuating whatever evil purpose they might conceal. So it has remained impossible if I may anticipate a little, to ascertain what was conveyed in this curious message or commission. Both Dunning and Harrington are firmly convinced that it had the effect of bringing its possessors into very undesirable company, that it must be returned to the source whence it came, they were agreed, and further, that the only safe and certain way was that of personal service, and here contrivance would be necessary, for Dunning was known by sight to Carswell. He must, for one thing, alter his appearance by shaving his beard. But then might not the blow fall first? Harrington thought they could time it. He knew the date of the concert at which the black spot had been put on his brother. It was June 18th. The death had followed on September 18th. Dunning reminded him that three months had been mentioned on the inscription on the car window. Perhaps, he added, with a cheerless laugh, mine may be a bill at three months, too. I believe I can fix it by my diary. Yes, April 23rd was the day at the museum. That brings us to July 23rd. It becomes extremely important to me to know anything you will tell me about the progress of your brother's trouble, if it is possible for you to speak of it. Of course. Well, the sense of being watched whenever he was alone was the most distressing thing to him. After a time I took to sleeping in his room, and he was the better for that. Still, he talked a great deal in his sleep. What about? Is it wise to dwell on that, at least before things are straightened out? I think not, but I can tell you this. Two things came for him by post during those weeks, both with a London postmark and addressed in a commercial hand. One was a woodcut of Bewick's, roughly torn out of the page, one which shows a moonlit road and a man walking along it, followed by an awful demon creature. Under it were written the lines out of the ancient mariner, which I suppose the cat illustrates, about one who, having looked round, walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. The other was a calendar, such as tradesmen often send. My brother paid no attention to this, but I looked at it after his death, and found that everything after September 18 had been torn out. You may be surprised at his having gone out alone the evening he was killed, but the fact is that during the last ten days or so of his life, he had been quite free from the sense of being followed or watched. 
The end of the consultation was this. Harrington, who knew a neighbor of Carswell's, thought he saw a way of keeping a watch on his movements. It would be Dunning's part to be in readiness, to try to cross Carswell's path at any moment, to keep the paper safe and in a place of ready access. They parted. The next weeks were no doubt a severe strain upon Dunning's nerves. The intangible barrier which had seemed to rise upon him on the day when he received the paper gradually developed into a brooding blackness that cut him off from the means of escape to which one might have thought he might resort. No one was at hand who was likely to suggest them to him, and he seemed robbed of all initiative. He waited with inexpressible anxiety as May, June, and early July passed on for a mandate from Harrington. But all this time Carswell remained immovable at Luford. At last, in less than a week before the date he had come to look upon as the end of his earthly activities, came a telegram. Leaves Victoria by boat train Thursday night. Stop. Do not miss. Stop. I come to you tonight. Stop. Harrington. He arrived accordingly, and they concocted plans. The train left Victoria at nine, and its last stop before Dover was Croydon West. Harrington would mark down Carswell at Victoria and look out for Dunning at Croydon, calling to him if need were by a name agreed upon. Dunning, disguised as far as might be, was to have no label or initials on any hand luggage, and must at all costs have the paper with him. Dunning's suspense as he waited on the Croydon platform I need not attempt to describe. His sense of danger during the last days had only been sharpened by the fact that the cloud about him had perceptibly been lighter. But relief was an ominous symptom, and if Carswell eluded him now, hope was gone, and there were so many chances of that. The rumor of the journey might be itself a device— the twenty minutes in which he paced the platform and persecuted every porter with inquiries as to the boat train were as bitter as any he had spent. Still, the train came, and Harrington was at the window. It was important, of course, that there should be no recognition, so Dunning got in at the farther end of the corridor carriage, and only gradually made his way to the compartment where Harrington and Carswell were. He was pleased, on the whole, to see that the train was far from full. Carswell was on the alert, but gave no sign of recognition. Dunning took the seat not immediately facing him, and attempted, vainly at first, then with increasing command of his faculties, to reckon the possibilities of making the desired transfer. Opposite to Carswell, and next to Dunning, was a heap of Carswell's coats on the seat. It would be of no use to slip the paper into these. He would not be safe, or would not feel so, unless in some way it could be proffered by him and accepted by the other. There was a handbag, open, and with papers in it. Could he manage to conceal this, so that perhaps Carswell might leave the carriage without it, and then find and give it to him? This was the plan that suggested itself. If he could only have counseled with Harrington, but that could not be. The minutes went on. More than one, Carswell rose and went out into the corridor. The second time, Dunning was on the point of attempting to make the bag fall off the seat, but he caught Harrington's eye and read in it a warning. Carswell, from the corridor, was watching 
probably to see if the two men recognized each other. He returned, but was evidently restless, and when he rose the third time, hope dawned, for something did slip off his seat and fall with hardly a sound to the floor. Carswell went out once more and passed out of range of the corridor window. Dunning picked up what had fallen and saw that the key was in his hands in the form of one of Cook's ticket cases with tickets in it. These cases have a pocket in the cover, and within very few seconds the paper of which we have heard was in the pocket of this one. To make the operation more secure, Harrington stood in the doorway of the compartment and fiddled with the blind. It was done, and done at the right time, for the train was now slowing down towards Dover. At a moment more, Carswell re-entered the compartment. As he did so, Dunning, managing he knew not how, to suppress the tremble in his voice, handed him the ticket-case, saying, "'May I give you this, sir? I believe it is yours.' After a brief glance at the ticket inside, Carswell uttered the hoped-for response, "'Yes, it is. Much obliged to you, sir.' And he placed it in his breast-pocket. Even in the few moments that remained, moments of tense anxiety, for they knew not to what a premature finding of the paper might lead, both men noticed that the carriage seemed to darken about them and to grow warmer, that Carswell was fidgety and oppressed, that he drew the heap of loose coats near to him and cast it back as if it repelled him, and that he then sat upright and glanced anxiously at both. They, with sickening anxiety, busied themselves in collecting their belongings, but they both thought that Carswell was on the point of speaking when the train stopped at Dovertown. It was natural that in the short space between town and pier they should both go into the corridor. At the pier they got out, but so empty was the train that they were forced to linger on the platform until Carswell should have passed ahead of them with his porter on the way to the boat, and only then was it safe for them to exchange a pressure of the hand and a word of concentrated congratulation. The effect upon Dunning was to make him almost faint. Harrington made him lean up against the wall, while he himself went forward a few yards within sight of the gangway to the boat, at which Carswell had now arrived. The man at the head of it examined his ticket, and, laden with coats, he passed down into the boat. Suddenly the official called after him, "'You, sir, beg pardon. Did the other gentleman show his ticket?' "'What the devil do you mean by the other gentleman?' Carswell's snarling voice called back from the deck. The man bent over and looked at him. The, the devil? Well, I, I don't know, I'm sure, Harrington heard him say to himself, and then aloud, My mistake, sir, must have been your rugs. I ask your pardon. And then to a subordinate near him, Had he got a dog with him, or what? Funny thing, I, I could have swore he wasn't alone. Well, whatever it was, he'll have to see to it aboard. Well, she's off now. Another week and we shall be getting the holiday customers. In five minutes more there was nothing but the lessening lights of the boat, the long line of the Dover lamps, the night breeze, and the moon. Long and long the two sat in their room at the Lord Warden. In spite of the removal of their greatest anxiety, they were oppressed with a doubt not of the lightest. Had they been justified in sending a man to his death, as they believed they had, ought they not to warn him at least? No, said Harrington. 
If he is the murderer, I think him. We've done no more than is just. Still, if you think it better, but how and where can you warn him? He was booked to Abbeville only, said Dunning. I saw that. If I wired to the hotels there in Joanne's guide, examine your ticket case, Dunning, I should feel happier. This is the 21st. He will have a day, but I am afraid he has gone into the dark. So telegrams were left at the hotel office. It is not clear whether these reached their destination, or whether, if they did, they were understood. All that is known is that, on the afternoon of the 23rd, an English traveller, examining the front of St. Wolfram's Church at Abbeville, then under extensive repair, was struck on the head and instantly killed by a stone falling from the scaffold erected round the northwestern tower, there being, as was clearly proved, no workman on the scaffold at that moment, and the traveller's papers identified him as Mr. Carswell. Only one detail shall be added. At Carswell's sale, a set of Bewick, sold with all faults, was acquired by Harrington. The page with the woodcut of the traveller and the demon was, as he had expected, mutilated. Also, after a judicious interval, Harrington repeated to Dunning something of what he had heard his brother say in his sleep. But it was not long before Dunning stopped him. All right, we are back. The edited story itself was about an hour long, and I know I tend to narrate a little bit slower than other narrators do, but it's still just a matter of like 50 minutes versus 53, 54. Oh, okay, so l let me tell you three things and then I'll let you go your way. First, I really like those fuzzy caterpillars. They just, they're interesting. I remember one time as a, a little boy, I caught one and I let it crawl on my hand and I broke out in a, like a really itchy rash everywhere that it had been. Uh, so I know that there are some that have toxins, something to keep them from being eaten by birds. Uh, second, the reason that I discovered M.R. James was that Stephen King in in a book of his mentioned an old story called O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. It's such a weird title that it sort of stuck with me. And then later that same week, uh, I was listening to an audiobook, and it also mentioned O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. And I was just like, this can't be the same. Is this? So I went back through King's book and I found it and it was. So I looked it up and I read about it and I thought, what? how come I've never heard of this M.R. James person? So I looked him up and in uh, the Wikipedia page for M.R. James, it says that Stephen King talked about James in his 1981 nonfiction book, Dance Macabre. I love Dance Macabre and I have a first edition. I have just like, you know, a beat up old paperback. And then I had like the 30th anniversary expanded edition where he talked about movies that had come out since he wrote the book. And uh, I looked through it and I couldn't find any reference to M.R. James, any reference to 
his stories. And I, I had specifically gone through it so that I could talk to you about it in this episode. But, but something that he did mention was Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And there's this line in Rime of the Ancient Mariner that goes, uh, one who having looked around walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. That's just a, a wonderful line, a terrifying line. And I, I went ahead and I did an entire reading of Rime of the Ancient Mariner on the Rich Outcast. And it was one of the harder things that I've ever had to record. It was just an insanely long poem and the meter was really off for me and half of the, not half of the words, but a lot of the words, I didn't know what I was saying. Feel free to go back and, and listen to that if you'd like, if you've done something wrong and would like to punish yourself. But, you know, to my surprise, when I looked up Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it said that in M.R. James Casting the Runes, it refers to that quote as well. And so I sought out Casting the Runes. I, I got a copy. I had not read it, but there was an audio version on Wikipedia, on, on YouTube. In fact, there are audio versions of tons of M.R. James's stories available there. And uh, I have not been able to make it through a single one. I just, I, I check out as soon as I hear the voice and the tone, maybe the timber, the pace, to the point where I would put it on, not just this story, but any story by M.R. James, when it was time to go to sleep, especially when I had to get up early the next day and I just wanted to be out like a light. That's not a criticism of the narrator. I Maybe you too had a, a hard time staying awake through my reading and I should have put a disclaimer on there, you know, don't put this on while you're driving or operating heavy machinery or operating on a patient. I said that I chose to do the narration in my own voice and the main character as an American, but that was having not read the story and thinking that the secretary who starts out the story with the letters was the main character. And I, so I made the decision to do his letters and the narration in my own accent. And I feel like it was a mistake. You know, I, I just thought, okay, well, he's an American. He's living in Britain. His wife is English. Nobody's going to have a problem with that. And I, and I hope that nobody did. But it just doesn't make sense. And there are ways that these characters speak. Why, my dear? Just at present, Mr. Carswell is a very angry man. But I don't know much about him otherwise, except that he is a person of wealth. His address is Luford Abbey, Warwickshire. And he's an alchemist, apparently, and wants to tell us about it. And that's about all, except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two. Just the way that that sentence is put together, a paragraph, it does not lend itself to an American accent. Even back a hundred years ago, we had a more relaxed way of talking, a more casual, informal way of talking. And only a Brit would speak to his wife in that stilted, scholarly, stodgy, professional manner. 
So if I had this to do over again, I would have voiced the secretary in an English accent and only the narration that wasn't first person would have been in my own voice. And that too may have been a mistake. Somebody would have been like, ah, you know, leave the, the, the English stories to the English men. Oh, women. And if that is the way that you feel, I get it. Unfortunately, <laughs> the next story that I did by M.R. James, I tried to rectify what I perceived to be a flaw in my reading of this one. And so I did the entire thing in an English accent as, as best I could. And I realized like two or three pages in that it wasn't in first person, that I was torturing myself and the listener for no reason at all. That my narration could have just been in American and all the character voices, which I think I do fine with different accents. But I had been recording for about 15 minutes, expending a lot of effort to get the voice to be consistent. So I didn't start it over. I just, I continued through to the end. It was also one of those where I was competing with my battery, which was now on the very last bar and so I knew that if I had started over, then there was no way that the battery would last all the way through to the end. And what if I couldn't remember, I couldn't keep straight how everybody's voices had gone? But if I had a time machine, I guess I would invest in GameStop stocks at the beginning of 2021. But I also would have told myself, hey, listen, do the secretary's voice with an English accent on casting the runes, but on the ash tree, do the narration in your normal accent. Well, there is a threat of things to come. I hope that you enjoyed my performance, and I even more than that, I hope that you enjoyed this story. It is a very well-done tale, and there is, well, th th there's some really good stuff in there, and I feel like some of it is lost because of the way that M.R. James speaks, that he writes, it would make a hell of a movie. And there was a, a TV adaptation done in 1968 that is lost. A lot of the stuff that British television did in the 60s was made on videotape and they reused those videotapes. They just, you know, they broadcast them and then they recorded over them. Most famously, Casting the Runes was adapted in 1957 in a movie called Night of the Demon. Some people call it Curse of the Demon, and that caused me confusion over the years. In fact, it is referred to in science fiction double feature at the beginning of Rocky Horror Picture Show. And science fiction double feature is one of the few songs that I can sing from beginning to end without having to look at any lyrics, and never tire of singing from beginning to end. And the line that refers to it is, Dana Andrews said runes, gave him the runes, and passing them used lots of skill. Which is kind of obscure. <laughs> you just have to figure out what movies Dana Andrews was in, and uh, are there any with runes in them. And I have never seen Night of the Demon. And 
when I was first editing this and I realized, oh no, this is going to be like an hour long. I thought, well, I'll split it into two episodes and I'll record the first episode and say, I haven't seen Night of the Demon, but join me in the next episode and we will talk about Night of the Demon. But I still haven't seen it. And I feel like that's something that I would enjoy, maybe sitting down with Marshall Latham and watching, and we could talk about it, especially having read the source material. Anyhow, that is it. This, there's, there's a moment in the story where it's dark. Mr. Dunning wakes up uh, in the night and he feels beside the bed and there's something there. It's a face that he feels in the night. And that is just a wonderful, terrifying idea. I love it. And I don't know how you would depict that in a film. I, but I, I would be very curious to see how people pull it off. The, there's an illustration in the book of ghost stories that I have, and it is of a hand reaching in the dark, and you see teeth, and you see like a dog's nose or something like that, and there, it's just right by the, the hand. It's super evocative. I really, really like it. Maybe I'll use that illustration in some way on here. I, I, I don't know. Oh, there's that. I thank you for listening. So, so the three requests I make of you are the caterpillar thing. Let me know what you thought of my reading and of the story. I mean, that goes without saying. You can always let me know what you thought of the reading and the stories. And then, oh, here's a fourth one. <clears throat> Tell me if you've seen Night of the Demon and what you thought of that. The, but the last request I would make of you is to, if, if you're so inclined and you want to support me, I have a Patreon fund. It's patreon.com forward slash Rishoutfield. It really helps motivate me to continue to do this show. And I, I hope you can see that there was work that went into doing this presentation for you. Even something that is in the public domain where anybody can do it. It, it, it was still a lot of work. If you're an expert on M.R. James, and you stumbled upon this episode because you're a fan of him, let me know what other stories I should seek out. Let me know what I'm missing. I really, really enjoyed the two narrations that I've done, and uh, I'd be happy to, to do a third. So I have been Rich Outfield, and this has been that podcast that just, it, 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 it doesn't dare speak its name. And I will let you go your way, because I know... A frightful fiend does close behind you tread. Greetings. This is fake Sean Connery. You know what scares me? Besides the unholy amount of work Rish puts into these fruitless, interminable episodes of his, that he does it all under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license which makes the episodes free to listen to, download, and spread around. Oh, the license does forbid changing the files, or selling them, or claiming them for your own. But that's little comfort when I'm trying to get some sleep and Rish is over there clicking away like a madman, cutting out ums and snorts and you knows and the profanities he screams at passing vehicles. Hey, suck my shriveled green d***. 
He's not alone, though. The music in this episode was also produced under a Creative Commons license by one Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Until next time, podcasts are forever. I never tire of the that's-what-she-said jokes, he said, stifling a yawn. I never tire of the that's-what-she-said jokes, he said, stifling a yawn. I never tire of the that's-what-she-said jokes. Ooh, that sounds like you have emphysema. Oh, shit. And grinned even broader than his melted features always did. Some of the stretched, wax-like skin on his face broke like pulled taffy. A section of the stretched, wax-like skin on his cheese. Is it wax? Instead of wax, I'm going to say cheese. A section of the stretched, cheese-like skin on his cheek broke. Nope. A section of the stretched, hot wax-like skin on his cheek broke like pulled taffy. A section of the stretched, candle-wax skin on his cheek broke like pulled taffy. If they made pink and black taffy, that was. Um, I'm going to switch that, too. If they made black and pink taffy, that was. If they made taffy that was black and pink, that was. This is fun. Oh, I think you know who I'm talking about. Oh, I think you know who I'm talking about. Has he become George Costanza? Which is fine. Is that my stomach making that sound? I thought it was a a dinosaur in the closet. I think I've just completely filled up the hard drive is what it is. And it's not its fault. It's just that's what happens when bodies start slapping. Dana Andrew said prunes gave him the runes and passing them. God, it's early in the morning. <laughs>